Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I have entitled the morning's message, The Two Olive Trees. Zechariah 4, verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And so I said, well, I'm looking, and I see a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the sand, seven lamps with seven pipes too, the seven lamps. The two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is at its left. And so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. I'll come back to seven uh, in just a little bit. But a little bit of background as we dive in this morning on the on the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is going to use a series of eight visions. We'll look at one of them this morning. Uh, four messages and two burdens to uh, portray God's future plan for his covenant people. The first eight chapters were written to encourage the remnant. That would be those who were... Um, coming back from Babylon to rebuild the temple while, while they were rebuilding the temple. And the last six chapters were written after the completion of the temple to anticipate Israel's coming Messiah. Zechariah moves from Gentile domination to Messianic rule. Uh, from persecution to peace and from uncleanness to holiness, the book divided in two, we have chapter 1 through 6, we're going to look at these visions. We'll look at one this week, and we'll look at another one next week. And then the book concludes with uh, 9 through 14, um, uh, the burdens that are in Zechariah. Some of you are wondering what happened to uh, Zephaniah and Haggai, Haggai, however you want to say it. Uh, we'll be coming back and going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, this Wednesday. I don't know if we'll get through both of them or not. But here is one of um, the visions, and I like it because our goal uh, at Calvary is to connect the dots between the, the Old Testament and the New, and how important it is to study the entire chapter. Matter of fact, our, one of our key verses for Calvary Chapel is verse 6 here that we just read, and I'll be making mention of that earlier. But to give you a visual to help you understand a little bit of what he is seeing and saying to the angel, what is it? I don't get it. Um, I went online found a picture of one. I'm going to put it on the screen right now of what Zechariah actually saw. And basically, um, you get uh, the oil from an olive tree. So we have a branch of it going into a bowl. In other words, the liquid would be going into the bowl. And then you have different golden pipes that go to the candelabra, the menorah, 
And basically, this is, is what he saw. It's symbolic, and we'll get into the meaning and the symbolism of what this is here. Here, it's a vision, and where we have the explanation to it is in, um, and what we're going to do is break this study up this morning into two different, kind of two different Bible studies. One is, um, who are the two olive trees? That's the question. And number two, how God does his building. In other words, how does the Holy Spirit work in the world today to accomplish the, the mission of preaching the good news? So with that, let's dive right in, turn all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Depending, <laughs> depending upon what kind of mood uh, the caretakers of the Temple Mount are in, you can go up. Or you can't. Uh, well, we were there. We were not able to go onto the Temple Mount. There will be a third temple that's going to be built. Um, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. Paul talked about it in Second Thessalonians 2. We're going to read about it in the first two verses of Revelation 11. This is um, halfway through the tribulation period. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city down for 42 months. Um, here, I, just a small little side track um, because it's dealing with the temple it's possible with these verses to when we visited the Temple Mount Institute um, they're adamant about uh, the Dome of the Rock has to be destroyed it can't be there because that rock is where they say Abraham offered Isaac well, I don't believe that. I believe that happened at Calvary. But that's what, that's what the Orthodox believe in Israel. So what's interesting about this is he's told to measure the temple, but not to measure the outer court because it's been given to the Gentiles. Now, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The outer court, I believe, is where the Dome of the Rock exists today. So the problems that, and the tensions that are going to rise in the world, the Bible says that Jerusalem is going to become a, a cup of trembling. There's going to be debate how to solve the problem with Jerusalem. And um, the logical answer would be to make it an international city that everybody could worship. Um, Don McLean actually has a song called Jerusalem. One of the lines is Muslim, Christian, Jew. That is sort of his pipe dream of what could be. Of course, we know that's not going to happen. But it might happen temporarily because there is a peace treaty we know that's going to be signed. It'll be broken halfway through a seven-year period of time. I want to point out 42 months in verse 2. 42 months is half of that seven-year period of time. In the very next verse, We'll talk about the two witnesses, and it's 1,260 days. Another way of saying three and a half years. Something very biblically significant 
is going to happen that we call the abomination of desolation right in the middle of the tribulation period. So it's possible, uh, Dr. Asher Kaufman, um, professor at the Hebrew University, I believe he's dead now. Chuck always pointed out that that, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Kaufman um, tells the story of being on the Mount of Olives and looking right through the eastern gate and having it line up exactly where the temple would have been. And uh, that's not the way it is today. If you would go to the eastern gate that's um, lined up there, you'll find the Dome of the Rock would be quite a ways off to uh, the, the left of it. And so it's possible that um, you could have the Dome of the Rock and the temple coexisting at the same time. All right, what I just said is my, <laughs> my guess. And if you, got a, if you got a better one, well, that's, that's all right with me. Uh, could the Dome of the Rock be destroyed? In a nutshell. Overnight, that could happen very, very easily. Could we take it back if we wanted to? Absolutely. We have more than enough uh, ability to take place. But I did want to touch on it because it's mentioned here, and it's uh, part of uh, the problem of the world today. All these believers, tourists, they want to go to the Temple Mount, and depending upon what kind of mood the Muslims are in that day, you get to go or you don't get to go. And we didn't get to go while we were there. All right, now verses um, 3 and 4. Fulfill the prophecy that we read from Zechariah chapter 4. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. And now John fills us in. Uh, thousands of years later, we have this prophecy, and all of a sudden, here it is, and it's still yet future. And we know for certain, because in my cross-reference here, it says Zechariah uh, 4, verses 2, 3, 11, and 14, all talking about what Zechariah saw. And now we're told that there are two prophets, or two witnesses, that... Um, have a ministry that lasts for 1,260 days. Now, that's exactly how long the first half of the tribulation is. And again, Daniel 9, if you're taking notes, is a, a very important verse to tie and connect these dots because this is where we're told that the, um, the Antichrist will sign that peace treaty, but he will break a seven-year peace treaty in the middle of that seven your period of time. Now, why two witnesses? Why just two? The Lord always leaves a testimony and a witness of himself from Adam until the, till the very, very end. Adam failed, just as Israel failed to be a witness. Um, Israel was the Old Testament witness that there was a creator. His name was Jehovah. And he was to be worshipped as such. And um, they failed by worshipping wooden objects and pieces of stone and golden calves and so on and so forth. When Jesus came, 
Um, John 1, verse 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So the Messiah that the Jews were looking for um, rejected him when he came, and as a result, the Lord opened up the gospel to the entire world. And for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in what we call the church age, or the age of grace. And our job during this period of time is to be, what? A witness. We're to be witnesses for the Lord. Above everything else, what's your job? That's in second place. You're a Christian first. You better give me an amen here. All right, you're a Christian first, and then fill in the blank, whatever you want to be after that. So we are to be lights in a dark world, to be salt. And Jesus says when salt loses its savor, what's it good for? Well, it's good for nothing. And we're to be salty. And um, we have a beginning point, and we have an ending point. The beginning point came when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, and the church was birthed, 3,000 people. It will have a concluding point. It says when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that that implies a set period of time and a, a set amount of people. He said, and that's the rapture of the church. And when that happens, the witness, the church, will have been removed from the planet. But the Lord always leaves a witness. So at I believe the scenario will go something like this. Um, immediately after the rapture of the church, can you imagine such a thing? Millions of people disappear? You don't think that's going to mess with the heads of the governments in the world? What happened? You notice how many TV programs about ETs and how we got into They're coming more and more and more, explaining that they're coming back because they were here once before. That's, that's the devil's way of of pointing out and producing a counterfeit and an explanation for what Thessalonians call they will believe the lie. Well, what's the lie? Oh, you, didn't you know you were ETs, that you were planted here and you're about to kill yourself? And if we don't come back and intervene, you guys are going to destroy yourself? That's how the story's going to go, like that. But it's not that. People you are talking to right now, and you've told them about the rapture, and they're blowing you off. They're not going to blow you off after the rapture happens. They're going to know exactly what happened. And they're not going to buy, some of them are not going to buy the lie that the Antichrist is going to tell. So we have to have, God always has a witness. So what do we have at the beginning? of the, We have the time frame, uh, 1,260 days, the lampstands, the two witnesses. And that's how long their ministry lasts for and then they will be killed. Well, if God is always leaving a witness, well, who's going to witness after the two witnesses are killed? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. So turn to chapter 14, and let's look at verse, uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 14. John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. We have an angel preaching the gospel. And what I want to point out here, again, is to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, 
For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, which is a chapter that deals with the disciples asking the question, Lord, when are you going to come and what's it going to be like? And one of the things that we read in verse 14, when talking about the last days, it says in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. And then the next couple of verses deals with what's the time frame. Because then he says, when you see the abomination of desolation. So when we connect these two verses, a lot of mission organizations will take verse 14 and use that as their theme. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're not going to accomplish that. And by the way, Christianity is not the fastest growing religion in the world. And we know that too. Matter of fact, the Lord says when he comes back, will I find faith on the earth? Just the opposite. So this verse right here, 14, I believe is fulfilled in Revelation 14, where we have an angel preaching the gospel to who? To every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. What does verse 14 say here? Preaches in all the world as a witness to the nations. I believe this verse right here is fulfilled by this angel. So even those who take the mark of the beast are going to hear the truth. (laughs) I think the Lord should have used angels long ago, but... It's going to tie into our message how God does things when we get to part two. But, um, you know, Cornelius was a godly man, and an angel appeared to him, and you want to know how to get saved. And they say, go ask Peter. you got an angel right there. I mean, he could do the job and probably better. But the Lord had to teach the church that God cares for Gentiles, not just the Jewish race. He's got a plan that's bigger than that. So um, the question now arises, we know there are two of them. We've seen a picture of them. The question now arises, well, who are they? Who are these two witnesses? Uh, Turn with me to the book of Malachi, which is we're coming to shortly. It's the last book in the Old Testament. It's four chapters long. And I'm interested in the last two verses. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. End of the Old Testament. 400 um, years of silence, and all of a sudden we have John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And so between verse 6 of Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, we call it the 400 silent years because God is not speaking through the prophets. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament um, prophet. What we're looking at here is a a double prophecy. Now, as we study God's word, 
um, you need to be sensitive to the fact that you can have in one line a prophecy of the first coming of the Lord and in the very next verse, the second coming. Zechariah 9, 9 is an example of that. He'll come lowly on a donkey. And verse 10, he's ruling over all the world. Well, there's a thousand year, two thousand year gap between, between those verses. So let's turn to uh, something similar. This I call a double prophecy. To uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Boy, am I going to make you guys turn this morning. I'll give you a chance to get there. It's taken me a while to get there. John 1. And now, 400 years later, we have God speaking again. And they know that it's somebody special. So picking it up in verse 19, we read, Now this is a testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he said, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, well, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that? Because that was the last thing the Old Testament said. They were waiting for Elijah to come. So they asked him, are you then Elijah? If you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? Notice what he said. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to those that sent us. What do you say about yourself? He just said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what I want to point out here is when asked straight out, John, are you Elijah? And he, his answer was what? No. Pretty clear, right? Are you, are you Elijah? No. All right, now I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, I'm picking it up in verse 7. He begins to talk about John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived. And verse 7, it says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. He's referring to John the Baptist. He says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I would interpret that, did you go out to see some sort of wimp? Some sort of wimpy guy? Like a reed that just blows in the wind? Nothing to him? No backbone? Sort of the idea? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and more than a prophet... For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now that is an incredible statement. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And here we make a distinction between the bride of Christ, those of you who are born again, and accepted Jesus as your Savior, you were looking forward to our wedding day. Another good place for an amen. I want to see his face. I've known him for a long time. But I want to see what my groom looks like. And so, he is, um, we're greater 
uh, because the the place on the planet, the kingdom age, is going to be given to the seed of David and uh, and the Jewish people. And there's two different roles here: one for the church, and the one for the God's promises that the covenants that He made with Israel. And then he says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Say what? Elijah just said he was. John just said he wasn't Elijah. Now Jesus says, if, if you guys can wrap your head around this, he is Elijah. Notice who is to come. Present tense. And that's important because it means he hasn't come yet. Is, are you confused with this? It shouldn't be because what we're finding here is the Lord is saying that the, the same spirit, let's, well, let's turn to it, let's go to Luke chapter 1 and connect all these dots together here. Matthew, Mark, Luke 1. And this time I'm looking at verse 11. This is when the angel appears to um, John's father, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Let me point out, I'll point it out again, that they rotated um, the temple duties of making the, the holy bread, uh, the incense, but also they had to keep oil in the menorah to keep it lit. So they had their daily routine. This is what Zacharias is doing. He's in serving in the temple. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. And you, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. They'll even have trains go by tooting their horns full of joy. You know, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn, catch this now, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, now it's starting to make sense. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's a double prophecy. Malachi says that Elijah will come when? Before the, right before the tribulation, before the great day of the Lord. But we have a double fulfillment in this prophecy because this is clearly talking about John the Baptist here. And it's clearly making reference to what he will do when he comes. He will be used as an instrument. He'll be a voice that will cause people's relationships to be healed and the father's hearts turn back to the sons and the sons to their fathers. Clearly pointing to uh, John the Baptist. But when he was asked, are you Elijah? No. When you talk to Jesus, he says, yes. So which is it? Both. Both are true. Because the spirit that was upon John the Baptist was the same spirit that was on Elisha. And you go, Dwight, how does that work? And my answer is, I don't know. (laughs) A lot of things we don't know. But the Bible clearly teaches it. One more 
with the question being asked, who are these two men? Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. Told you I was going to make you turn a little bit this morning. Now in Israel, when at Megiddo, the guide will point out across the Jezreel Valley, and he'll, he'll say, there's a mount of transfiguration. And you can see it from there. Well, I don't know who ever told them it was. Nowhere in the Bible do we say the Mount of Transfiguration was this particular mountain, but that's what they tell all the tourists. I tell our group it's our Mount Arbel because I've been on both, and if I was to pick between one and the other and I'm the Lord, I would definitely choose Arbel over the other one. And so it's uh, their speculation. Nobody knows that I don't know where the Mount of, it just says a high place. So in chapter 17, after verse 1, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up to a high mountain, Arbel, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them and talked with them. What? Elijah never died. He was taken uh, by a whirlwind into heaven. Moses did die, and uh, he was um, buried in a place that only the Lord knows. Interesting verse in Jude that Michael the archangel and the devil fought over the body of Moses. And we go, what's that all about? And my answer again is, I don't know. doesn't tell us. And um, yet here, we have Jesus being glorified right in front of these guys' eyes. And then we have Moses and Elijah there. Well, Peter couldn't contain himself. He says, Lord, it's a good thing we're here. We should build three churches, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Peter, don't get so caught up just because Moses is here. Don't get so caught up because Elijah is here. They're my instruments, but we're told they were just men. James 5, it says, Elijah was an ordinary man who had passions and weaknesses and failures just like you and I do. And then it goes on to say, but when he prayed, he prayed with faith and it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. That's in the book of James. Now remember that because we'll connect those dots. Again, the question is, who are the two witnesses? At this point, um, I am certain about one and 99.99999% sure about the other one. They are Moses and Elijah. Now, I say that because when we read a little bit farther back in the book of Revelation, let's just go back to real quickly and, and tie in their abilities and why the use or the idiom of a lampstand that has a continuing flow of oil going into it. All right. If the job of Zach. Zacharias was to keep oil in the, in the candle in the temple 
Imagine if you didn't have to do that. Imagine if you had an olive tree that continually dripped oil into a bowl that had pipes that ran into it, and you had a continuing flow of oil all the time. Now, oil is symbolic of authority. Remember when Samuel anointed David? What did he anoint him with? Oil. So it's a sign of, I would say, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God and his power. Remember, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So we're equating oil with the power of God. We're told that the two witnesses are these lampstands. What is the vision trying to tell us? That they have an unlimited resource of power. And we read here in verse 6 that they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Question, how long is their prophecy? Answer, 1,260 days. Dwight, are you telling me it's not going to rain for three and a half years? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And I know I repeat this, but that's how we learn. Has that happened before? (laughs) Yes, during the time of King Ahab. Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. And it didn't rain. We went up on Mount Carmel. And uh, I think Mike Fernandez gave the Bible study. And he just said it didn't rain for that period of time. And when the three and a half years were up, um, we went up to a high vantage point. You could see the Mediterranean, but you could also see the, the, the Valley of Jezreel, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And Elijah said, it's going, going to rain. Go see if you can see any rain clouds co- coming over the Mediterranean. Nope, none coming. Go look again. Nothing there. Go again. Well, there's this little cloud. That's it. <laughs> Get ready and run, because it's going to rain, and it's going to rain hard. And it rained, just exactly the way Elijah said. So, verse 6, that's power, by the way. And they have power to turn uh, water into blood. Well, if that doesn't smack of Moses and the plague of Egypt, then I don't know what does. So my basis for believing that the two olive trees... And the two lampstands that are, are the lampstands here is a reference of Elisha, who is to come. We know that was foretold. And who other to be a witness to the Jewish people than Moses? And they would, the Jews are always bragging, well, we have Abraham and Moses as our fathers. And that's the authority. So do you think they're going to have an impact uh, in preaching? the gospel after the church is gone? Oh, yeah. And they're going to back it up. Now, we'll get to the gospel. I'm not going to read verse 7 quite yet. I'll come back to it. But I want to begin now to go back to our text in Zechariah and look at verse 6. And again, the question is, how does God accomplish his work? And we read in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who was Zerubbabel? Well, um, I'll get to him in just a bit. Uh, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. 
And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. Remember, the temple was destroyed. And now we have a group of people back in the land, but they're, they're, they're so discouraged. It was so beautiful, and now everything's in, in waste. This is where the book of Nehemiah comes in. This is where the book of Ezra comes in. And one of the chief characters during this time was a guy, according to the book of Ezra, whose name is Zerubbabel. And his job is to encourage the people to lay the foundation again, get back to work, let's rebuild the temple. And so his hands also will finish it, and then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the days of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Any builder here knows what a plumb line is. It keeps your board straight. Uh, They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Verse 11, then I answered and said to him, well, what are these two olive trees? One on the right of the lampstand and the other on the left. And I further answered and said to him, and what are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes from which the golden oil uh, drains? Then he answered and said, do you not know who these are? And I said, no, my Lord. These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. I was telling Judy this morning, I said, I'm reading, going over my notes, and I never saw that before. And that is stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And it caused me to think of Matthew chapter 17, where Moses and Elijah are standing beside the Lord. Now, I don't know if that's a a direct connection or not, but it's um, it's a a reference to it here. So... The, the building of the temple, uh, it's a whole study um, within itself. But the point and the little uh, rabbit trail that I want to take off on this morning is this verse here in chapter 6. And there's a lot of ways people look at ministry and how to do ministry. There's a lot of different formulas that people think they have. Um, our foundation stone, besides Lord Jesus Christ, which is a, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus. Good place for an amen. But then he uses human instruments. In this case, it's Zerubbabel. But it's going to not be because he's um, a gifted and talented builder. It's going to be because it's by the Spirit of God that's upon this particular man. So... We could um, um, go to Ezra and and talk about, actually, the building program. But this verse really is a cornerstone for the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, Chuck would quote it at every pastor's conference, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, I remember when Rick Warren... um, wrote his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And um, and then Warren Smith wrote 
a book, Deceived on Purpose, uh, referring to the purpose-driven life, sort of a play on words. I knew it would cause division. So I went to Chuck and I says, I just read this book and it exposes Rick Warren for what he's really doing and and um, it's going to cause division if I promote it and I won't do it if you say no. Chuck read it and he said, it's spot on. Go ahead and encourage people to read it. And so the book basically exposes a method of church growth, how to do it. And the reason Chuck gave the green light, it goes 100% contrary to what I just read here. That it's not by power, it's not by might, it's not by programs, it's not by having a purpose, but it's by God's spirit. And so, um, who came out of this, and Paul Smith's book is really does an excellent job in talking about um, Rick Warren in particular, I'm going to tie in Bill Hybels here also, on how to do ministry. And um, the question, the, the one that uh, the common denominator between Hybels and, and Rick Warren is a man whose name is Peter Drucker. Now, some of you are very acquainted with Peter Drucker, and some of you here are hearing his name for the first time. So who is he? Well, he was the leading guru to CEOs in corporate America. Uh, his job was raising up leaders. He would look for especially gifted people, talented people, and he would use them uh, to um, raise up leadership. He's not a Christian, but he's known for training up leaders in corporate America. But he became interested in the church, and he took um, both Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, and they became mentored by Peter Drucker. Let me just read something I pulled off the internet because I um, want to explain just a little bit about him. One perhaps unexpected example of Druckerism is the modern megachurch movement. He suggested to evangelical pastors that they create a more customer-friendly environment, hold back on overt religious symbolism, and provide plenty of facilities. In other words, make it seeker-sensitive. Bill Hybels, the pastor of the 17,000-strong Willow Creek Community Church in South uh, Barrington, Illinois, has a quotation from Mr. Drucker hanging outside his office. I quote, it says, What is our business? Question. Who is our customer? Question. What does the customer consider valuable? In other words, he built the church by doing a demographic research of his community and saying, hey, what would you guys like to see in a church? And so they built the church around what people wanted to see in a church. Uh, Somebody wrote a book, This Little Church um, Went to Market. (laughs) I think that's a pretty clever little title. And... um, Whether it's recognized or not, the organization and practice of management today is derived largely from the thinking of Peter Drucker. His teaching from a blueprint for every thinking leader in a world of quick fixes and glib explanations, a world of fads and simplistic PowerPoint lessons, he understood that the job of leading people an institution is filled with complexity. 
He taught generations of managers the importance of picking, this is important, picking the best people. Picking the best people and focusing on them um, and focus on business, most valuable assets to be its people. Generally, he is considered the father of management, but I also consider him the father of marketing. He said that the role of business is to create a customer. He always emphasized focusing on customers and understanding what their values are. Now, having read that, I want to contrast it with what the Word of God teaches on this subject. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What are chapter 1's this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Zechariah, Zerubbabel, had a building program going on. And the Lord said he was going to do it. He's going to just pick this guy, and it's not going to be by his might, and it's not going to be by his power, but it's going to be by the Spirit of the Lord that the temple would be built. In other words, as we would equate it to us today as the church, that if we're salt and light, how do, how do we uh, equip people? Do we look for the brightest and the best and then have leadership programs and bring in people who are not even saved? That's what Bill Heibel does. He has almost 1,700 churches worldwide that are members of Willow Creek. And every year they have their leadership council. And if you can find a Christian among any one of them, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the exception rather than the rule. Because they're usually CEOs of some corporation. They're not even born again. And that's who they bring in for their conferences. So what does the scripture say? Well, let's, let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 1, picking it up with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. There's Peter Drucker. And bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For a Jew, they require a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks is foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now verse 25. Because the foolishness, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now Peter Drucker says you go out and you look for the sharp guys. You look for the guys that graduated at the top of the class, valedictorians. You look for those guys. You invest in them. And um, But what does verse 29 says? For you see your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. 
and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God purposely does just the opposite of what Peter Drucker has talked Rick Warren and Bill Hybels to do. By the way, Bill is retiring next year. Uh, He's being replaced by two pastors. One's a male and one's a female. And he has no problems with um, gay worship leaders in his uh, congregation. And when he has conferences, does he bring in these people? No, he wouldn't have anything to do with the list that we just read. He's looking for the valedictorians because that's what Peter Drucker said. Get the brightest and the smartest, invest in them, and raise up leaders. Well, yeah, guess what? You will be successful in a worldly sense because this is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, how do you know that you're successful in ministry? Well, how many people are in your church? Isn't that, isn't that the, uh, the marker that it's measured by? In worldly standards, yes. And guess what? The largest churches in the world are Willow Creek Associated Churches, influenced not by the Holy Spirit, but by Peter Drucker. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. I'll take this little guy over here named Zerubbabel, and I'm going to put God's spirit on him, and then I'm going to build the temple. Well, you're the, you're the temple, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it says the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, to the world, this is crazy. They, when, when a born-again person is speaking to somebody who's not born again, they don't get it. And the Bible says they won't get it because they're spiritually undiscerning, because they have not yet been born of the spirit. So here we have mega churches who the leadership that's teaching aren't even Christians. Drucker's not a Christian, and they'll, they'll say so. But if, uh, you can be a leader, but where are you going to teach them? When we're told to um, um, know the voice of the Lord, be obedient to his leading, how can you be led if you're not even born again? Ooh, I can't really get, start preaching here, but I better get going because I need to put a period at the end of this Bible study. There's man's way to do ministry, and then there's God's way. And um, as we read, um, let's go back to Zerubbabel, and I'll talk just a little bit about him. We read that it's going to be by God's Spirit that I'm going to use Zerubbabel, and it will be with shouts of grace, grace, grace. To the person who's truly born again, what are we most grateful for? Grace, grace, grace. God's grace. And we, when we talk about the temple here, I'm not going to have you turn. I'm just going to quote Ezra 3.8. It says, Now in the second month, on the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem. Remember the 70 years in Babylon. Well, now they're back, but they're discouraged. Uh, they began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jehua, with his sons and brothers, arose to oversee those who were working on the house of God. 
And when it was done, they were so happy. The young people were making these shouts of joy and praising and worshiping the Lord. But the old men began to cry. Why? Well, they remembered what Solomon's temple looked like and the glory of it. And when they saw this thing compared to Solomon, they were saying, we're not talking apples and apples here. (laughs) But the other guys didn't care. They had the temple, and they were full of the joy of the Lord, but not the older ones. Matter of fact, uh, this is a song that they sang. They sang this song, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. God uses human instruments. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord look all over the world for somebody that he can use. Well, there's two ways of doing ministry. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man. And if I'm just a man who's not born again, but's in ministry and want to see it successful, then I look at man's way of doing things. Look, look for the, the best and the brightest, and they'll accomplish something. And at the end of the day, they'll have their status of Victorian. Now, let's... Unless I'm misunderstood this morning, there might be some fellow Victorians sitting out there that are feeling uncomfortable right now. Remember Paul and his his uh, resume. You know, Paul studied under Gamaliel the best, and he was the brightest. He says, "Of the Jew, I've worked harder than any of them, and there's none that have labored more or suffered more." And he he. When he gives his rap sheet out, there's none who would have been valedictorian than the Apostle Paul. Good place for an amen. So there are some, but the norm is that they get the glory. You know, they're the ones that get up and give the graduation speech, right? So that everybody can see them and encourage you how to be successful in life. Well, the Lord does just the opposite. He looks for somebody that when God does a work, God gets the glory because people look at the guy and it's got to be God because it can't be him. <laughs> and God gets the glory. And that's the way it should be. Good place for an amen. So if you think you're unusable or not qualified, you're qualified. <laughs> that's the thinking. But I need to expose because it's out there today. And um, unless you study the scriptures... And know that the Christian world is big. And there's a lot of compromising going on for the sake of of having people in their churches. There will be places where you'll you'll cut corners, so to speak, biblically. But my book is black and white. And on this particular issue, when it comes to how does God do his building process, chooses fishermen, tax collectors, guys like that, people like you and me that um, when God works and people say, well, I'm really grateful for what you did as a Christian, be gracious and say thank you, but you better be saying praise the Lord in the back of your mind and make sure that the Lord is getting all the glory. I've watched too many of my friends watch it go to their head when 
Calvary chapels became mega churches. And I watched some of them fall because they began to take the glory. One of them actually came out and said, he said, I let my celebrity get to me. And one of our pastors said to him, whoever said you are a celebrity. But that can happen. And so God has his ways of of keeping us humble. Paul went to heaven and God had to keep him humble. He gave him um, a messenger of Satan. What is that? It's a demon. To do what? To buffet him. What for? To keep him humble. Three times Paul said, get rid of this thing. It's driving me crazy. I don't like it. And uh, the third time the Lord spoke to me and says, no, Paul. He says, when you're weak, then I'm strong. You just went to heaven. You could write a book about it and make a million dollars. And I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to keep that thorn in the flesh that's going to keep you humble. And that way, I'm going to get all the glory and you're not. And so when it came time to, to, uh, for, for, for Paul to die, they, they beheaded him. And uh, he was set free. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He would go and say things like, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You know, some of us, when we're getting old, Jim and I were working, he helped me with a window, and um, I was cutting up some wood. I go, Oh, my back is killing me. He says, Isn't your back hurting you? He says, You're killing me? It's been killing me all day long. And I said, What did you say? And I said, I don't know. I can't hear anymore either. Oh, when are we going to get a new body? And why should we, the more you know God's word, the more you look forward to saying, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? We don't fear it. We look forward to it. And especially when I can't do the things that I used to love doing. My body just won't let me do it anymore. So I'm going to get a new one. And, um, and uh, I look forward to that. Um, let's close this morning by looking at an example of the gospel with the two witnesses. Go back to Revelation 11, and we'll close with this this morning. For three and a half years, Moses and Elijah preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 says this. If you are not born again, If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the gospel, as clear as it can be given. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Jesus came to die for your sin. To prove that he was God, he rose from the grave three days later. So now we have the two witnesses. Even in their death, they're going to continue to witness. Let's pick it up in verse 7. I told you we'd come back to this verse. Now when they had finished their testimony, in other words, when their work was done, 
the beast, the Antichrist, that ascended out of the bottomless pit that made war against them and overcame them and killed them. So the Antichrist is going to kill the two witnesses. Their dead bodies will lie in a street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. We're talking about Jerusalem. And here, the writer is referring to it as Sodom. Then those of the people and tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Do you know that 100 years ago that was impossible? You couldn't read this verse and it wouldn't make sense? It says that people are going to see their dead bodies from all over the world, all tongues and nations. Well, we don't think anything about that today. We can go turn on BBC and see what's happening there, or watch the news, what event happened here, instantaneously. That's, what's, that's why another reason we believe we're close to the Lord's coming. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and those who saw them, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to him, Come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So the whole world, if there was any doubters about what they were saying, they preached the gospel that Jesus died, and they came back to life after three three days. Now it happened to them. And now if you're somebody in the world that... Maybe I should be listening to these guys. I know those guys were dead. And all of a sudden, they arise, and they're bodily taken up into heaven. Sound familiar? That's exactly what happened with Jesus. Bodily taken into heaven. And that same hour, there was a great earthquake. Hmm, was it the one at the cross also? Yeah. And a tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Question, as we go this morning. In Matthew 25, there's a parable of ten virgins. It says five are wise and five are foolish. And um, they were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Now, the five that were wise had oil in their lamps. And the five that were foolish had no oil. And they wanted, said, hey, give us some of your oil. And they said, no, go get it for yourself. And so while they were gone, the Lord came. And he took those who had oil in their lamps. Now, what's the parable about? Well, five of them were wise. What does the Bible say about wisdom? There's Peter Drucker's wisdom, but the Bible talks about wisdom too. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the beginning. And realizing that I can't do this. I've got to have oil in my lamp. What does that mean? It means that the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. These five virgins that were wise were saved by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit dwelt in them. Therefore, when the Lord came, he took them. But the five that were foolish, well, they were called virgins too. What does that mean? It means they believed they were actually Christians because they went to church. Maybe to a megachurch, who knows? But if you would ask them, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. 
but they weren't born again. Being born again means Jesus actually lives and you become the temple of God. So if you're not that person this morning who has received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and ask him for your spirit um, so that when he does come, the, uh, the parable said that they were ready. And the sad part about it is the Lord came to the other ones and um, they said, Lord, open on to us. And he says, I never knew you. You see, it's not knowing about him intellectually up here, but it's knowing him personally in here. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we consider the two witnesses. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray, as your word tells us, um, that it's not by power or might, but by your spirit. Lord, I pray for anyone who has never received you as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray for the deceptions that, that are out there in the church, a lot of the mega churches today, that are doing it according to man's programs and not according to your spirit. I pray that we would be bold um, Christians in exposing uh, a true gospel from a false gospel and help us be those virgins who have our lamps trimmed and are waiting for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.